0: Pete, hey everyone, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot more people here than when we started, wow, <laughs> you know it depends where you are, you know I always say hey Seaberg I know you enough to have Luke here and then I always tell them but you know actually South Bend was a bit sick of him so they asked if I could come, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good and fun but it is so good to be together, um, yeah I mean Hyz and myself were part of the the eldership team here for about two years, maybe two and a half years when the congregation launched, so we really do feel uh, very much at home here, which is exciting. Love being over here. And just so you know, Seberg loves having Luke there, so I don't take it personally. I mean, what a tremendous communicator, even my own preaching. I mean, I've learned so much from Luke as he's worked with me and coached with me behind the scenes. So, Man, what a, what a good bunch of leaders you've got, eh? and his wife is just the best thing about him by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> but you saw a picture of the family, that's me, Don, my wife, Heidi, two little kids, uh, Rachel in front, and then little Becky, uh, we're having a lot of fun. My wife is a pediatric physio, works at Redham Primary, so yeah, we're in the pain of... Public holiday, school holidays. Last week, her going on holiday this week. Although it's not a lot of pain for her, the kids are going to be at school. I think it's going to might be her best holiday yet. And uh, she also runs a practice from home in the afternoon. So power woman, uh, business woman, and yeah, so proud of it. And she does so well. Well, I get also, by the way, in the, um, the Holy Week, you know, you're going to get this devotional, the link to the devotional every morning and then in every evening, there's going to be a live broadcast. The details will go out with you where there'll be like a, anything from a 10 to 15 minutes little recording for you to listen to. Um, I know Luke is doing one, James, myself, and I think then Luke's doing the last one again, just with some reflections over the day as you've meditated on those texts. So yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be good. Back to today, we're in week three of the James series. I mean, I don't know about you guys, I am absolutely loving the James series. I mean, it's just been so thrilling to prepare, to get into the text, to go deeper and deeper. <laughs> I realize there's TV outside, it's so weird, everyone's like kind of looking up into the sky. <laughs> but I know what's going on. So in week one and two, I mean, in this, in this first kind of sub-series of five weeks, we're looking at you know, following Christ in, in the midst of trials. I mean, we know James is writing to Jewish Christians. They've been persecuted. They're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so we've seen in week one that, you know, a faith that grows through trials perseveres towards maturity. That actually in these difficulties, God is moving us into maturity. And then last week, I know Luke spoke to you guys about, you know, a faith that grows through trials seeks wisdom from above, seeks wisdom supernatural wisdom from God in the midst of the difficulties. I can say this about James. I can promise you this. If you with a humble heart and a submissive heart read through the book of James, there is just no ways you're going to get to the end of that book and not be transformed, not be changed not experience the Spirit of God at work in His Word, just challenging us and maturing us and growing us and calling us into this, this tested and pure and strong and mature faith. I mean, I think that's what's the most exciting thing about the whole series, this constant call from James to maturity. I mean, isn't that what we want for our lives? I mean, isn't that what we want as Christ followers? We want to mature, we want to grow up, and God doesn't want us to just grow old. He wants us to grow up in our faith. He wants us to be mature. So he's transforming us. And obviously, it's not only as we hear God's word spoken. It's also in our hearts and our minds as we sit under the authority of God's word. So we allow God's word to speak to us about our lives, to speak to us about our circumstances. And we don't stand over God's word saying, "Mm, yeah, yeah, no, no. We sit under God's word and we say, God, let your word do its work in my life. I'm going to pray along those lines in just a moment. So my hope is that also in the book of James that you're anticipating the work of God in your life, that you're expecting God to radically challenge you and transform you and to mature you and to, that at the end of the series, you're going to be more Christ-like than you were at the start of the series. Wow, amazing. And so you're expecting that for yourself. You're expecting that for your community, which I, I think is a great thing to do. Uh, As you said, there's some, uh, maybe some visitors, maybe there's even some of you here who haven't yet accepted Christ. Maybe online you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower. Well, good. Thanks for joining us. Good to have uh, you guys in the room. I mean, I think it's true. It doesn't matter whether you're following Christ or you're not following Christ, we all experience life's trials. I mean, we heard that, you know, life is full of setbacks, full of uh, trials, troubles, challenges, and they they really test us. They test who we are. We find that our true selves exposed or overflowing or coming out, coming through the cracks when we're put under a little bit of pressure. But if you're not yet a Christ follower, I I hope that today you hear an invitation from God. They hear an invitation from God that you don't have to go through life's setbacks and experiences and difficulties on your own, that you don't have to forge your own path, you don't have to make it all work on your own power, and your own ingenuity, and your own wisdom, and your own strength, that actually God is inviting you into a rest, even in the midst of difficulty, that is inviting you to greater purpose, to greater meaning, to greater identity in the midst of what you're experiencing in life. So I hope you hear that invitation. But of course, most of us here are Christ followers. We already follow Jesus with our lives. And, uh, and so this is a brilliant call to maturity, a call to maturity. Maybe I could specifically speak to you if you've been following Jesus for a long time. There's a lot of people that have been following Jesus for decades, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We're, it's, a good, it's a good thing we're in James, I think the truth is, the longer you follow Jesus, it's possible, not always the case, that sometimes we can grow a little complacent. You know, sometimes we just become very familiar with the things of God and the Bible, and you know, we've heard that, we've read that, we've been there, we've done that. And, and you know, sometimes that over-familiar, over-familiarity, it, it can really stunt our growth. It can stunt our maturity in God. It can, can kind of cause us to just settle or plateau, as it were. So James is a gift to you. So that's you. If you're that decade-old Christ follower, what an opportunity in the book of James to freshly lean into God and say, God, there's there's a greater call to maturity here. You haven't yet arrived. There's more. There's more that God wants to pour into your life. Exciting, right? You know, I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware in my own life of how... Sometimes difficult it is to keep the really important things in life important, to keep the important things important. I don't know if you can relate. Sometimes in the complexity of life and the busyness of it and as it's all going on, what happens is that far less important things kind of rise to the surface, kind of start to capture our minds and our diaries and our attention and our priorities and they become center stage. And they're not unimportant, but they're less important than a lot of other things. But they tend to want to become central in our lives. Maybe they are urgent. doesn't make them important, but they're urgent. You know, we feel like we've got to get to these things. Maybe they're important to someone else. Maybe they're important to culture. You know, maybe we're feeling the pressure and and somehow they just rise to the top. Sometimes without even realizing it. Here's a, an example. I say it's a silly example. It's not silly, but just an idea. It's, it's, for example, a date night with your wife, if you're married. You know, it's, it's not urgent. You know, there's a lot of other things in your life that are really urgent, that are calling for your attention. And so what can happen is you, you kind of let that stuff slide, and you know, other things are becoming more and more important. And those lesser things kind of you know, take central place in your life. But actually what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're keeping these really important things in our lives important. And we're investing in the aspects of our life that actually God is calling us to invest in. And I think in a, in a different kind of way, what James is going to speak to us today is about the same kind of, a kind of way in that sometimes lesser things in our lives start to determine how we see ourselves. How we think of our identity, who we are, why are we here, what we're called to do, what is our worth, what is our value, how do other people see us, do we have anything to offer this world? I mean, these other things, that they're lesser things, they're not unimportant, they're lesser things, and they start to determine our very sense of self, and I think James wants to address that today. It can happen maybe through neglect through distraction, maybe even unconsciously, but it does happen in our lives. So we're going to look at James 1, verse 9 to 12, these three precious verses, and we're going to see today that a faith that grows through trials has an identity rooted in Christ, not circumstances. Can I pray for us? As we we trust God to do something magnificent in our lives, God, we invite your transformation. God, we we know that your spirit, when your spirit and your word come together, we're transformed in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our actions. And God, we desire to be changed. We want to say yes to more Christ-likeness. Yes to reflecting you. Yes to bringing more glory to your life through who we are, how we live, what we believe, what we hold to as true. And so God, have your way in us. Can you pray that right now where you are? Just say, God, speak to me and transform me through the power of your word. Okay, amen. So I'm, I'm going to read through the text, and then what we're going to do is I want to go through it verse by verse. We're going to look at three encouragements that James gives in this text. He, he encourages firstly the poor, then the rich, and then he speaks to everyone. I know, it's, it's intense. James 1 verse 9. The brother, in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in his high position. Strange. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. It doesn't quite sound right, does it? Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I mean, this is God's word, and may he bless us through it. So some quick context, just so we can, if you haven't been here for all the Jameses, just so you know where we are. Um, It's interesting in the flow of James 1. It's like he's writing about these trials and perseverance and wisdom and then it's almost like he changes tack here quite radically and all of a sudden now he's talking about the rich and the poor. And uh, why the sudden change of focus? Well, I, think, I think probably there's two reasons for that. The one is he, he kind of wants to give them a working example, a case study, as it were. Like, you know, this is what this could look like in your life. You know, this is a common trial. This is a common situation that people find themselves in that we grapple with. So I think there's, there's a kind of aspect to that. But the second aspect, I think, why he makes this radical shift is because actually James has a lot to say about material possessions and wealth and riches or even lack thereof. It's not just a random case study. He's actually speaking to the church, to these Christ followers scattered. He's trying to help them because somehow this issue of wealth radically impacts lives. But not only individual lives. It has a way of impacting Christian community in dramatic ways even amongst us Christ followers. It can create barriers, it can create separation, even in the body of Christ. So remember, again, who he's writing to, he's writing to these scattered Jews throughout the Roman Empire, you know, they've obviously experienced impact. You don't get persecuted and scattered without impact. I mean, we don't exactly know what the impact is, you know, maybe some guys ended up in towns or cities or villages where they're you know the people were quite open to doing business with them and so they managed to accumulate some wealth maybe others ended in places where they were persecuted and just and they just couldn't get anything off the ground you know maybe others had to leave behind their businesses and just as they fled they found themselves now in economic need maybe some had skills that were widely needed and so they could easily find a niche wherever they went but others didn't and so they found themselves in need there's a few other circumstances in james where he speaks about this topic. James 2, 1, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. In verse 15, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And he goes on to speak about that. James 4, 1, he says, What causes fights and quarrels amongst you, Christ follows. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want can see that throughout the book of James, this is a theme that's going to recur. So that's the context. Let's, let's dig into today's, in today's message. And here's the big idea. It's this. Christ followers must keep their identity rooted in Christ, not temporary circumstances. Temporary circumstances. You can kind of, as you read these verses, you can imagine why he's writing or what circumstances he's writing in. You can picture what's happening relationally and how people are thinking about themselves by the advice that he gives them or the encouragement that he gives them. And what he's talking to in the life of these Christ followers and in their relationships with each others, he's addressing a great temptation that Christ followers are experiencing. And it's kind of a temptation to, I guess it's an identity deception, That the Christ followers are vulnerable where they find themselves to be deceived around who they really are. And so he wants to speak into that. I guess more specifically, Christ followers are facing the temptation to think that their physical circumstances or their economic reality or the station of life that they find themselves in in any given time that, that that circumstance, that reality defines or embodies everything that's true about them. So, I mean, I, as you prayed for me during the prayer meeting, Peter, I had this, uh, this idea, so I went and did it quickly. So the reality is, you know, a Christ follower, child of God. You know, that's, that's who you are, child of God. But what can happen is you can look at your circumstances, you look around you and you think, actually, my circumstances determine who I am, and so... I'm poor, or I'm rich, that's who I am, or actually I'm rejected, or actually right now I'm unemployed, that's who I am, this is the real me, this is my true circumstances, or maybe you're on the other hand where you're doing well and you're accepted in culture and you're accepted by people, so what happens is these temporary circumstances are actually starting to determine people's sense of identity, their sense of purpose, their sense of worth and meaning and value. They're losing sight of eternity, their faith is waning, and it's having a negative impact on their Christ likeness. And so he gives these three encouragements so that we can avoid this kind of identity deception. So, firstly, James gives an encouragement to the poor. He says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. I mean, this paradoxical language is really effective. Chesterton says it's like truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. So you you get the impact of what he's trying to say here, that those in humble circumstances actually have a high position. They're looking at their circumstances and they're thinking, oh, this is me. I'm in humble circumstances, therefore I'm a low person. I mean, Kent Hughes, he, he writes, he says, because they were economically low... They were low in the eyes of the world, and no doubt, in most instances, low in their own eyes. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. So what does James do, as James always does, is he calls us to action. He gives them something to do. He says, guys, take action when you're facing these kind of circumstances. And he says, he almost commands them, he says, take pride in your high position. The ESV says, you know, you in humble circumstances should boast in your high position. He's saying, actually, even if you find yourself in, a, in humble circumstances materially, that you should, you should still carry an unusually high confidence in yourself or in someone. He's saying you should be talking about, celebrating, bragging about your high position, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in any given moment. So the big question is, what is the high position? What is this high position? And he's already said it in that opening verse. He says, "My brothers, my sisters," he's saying that you should be celebrating and boasting in the truth about your standing, your your uh, purpose, your identity as children is God. In God. So in other words, these things don't define you. You're loved. That's who you are. You're, you're forgiven and accepted. And he's calling them and he's saying, you should be boasting in these things. You should be celebrating these things. You should be valuing these things. You should be seeing yourself through the lens of these things before temporary circumstances around you. I guess another thing that he's also saying to the church is he's saying, you know even if you find yourself in humble circumstances in life, you know, and you know, he's speaking about economically here, but even, even maybe um, you know, through negative business deals or persecution or being set across, we, we're humbled, we're in humble circumstances. He said, hey, not only your position in Christ, but also the dignity and your place in the life of the local church. Boast in that. Boast that amongst the people of God, that everyone is equal despite our circumstances. He says, hold your head up high. And as you hold your head up high, as you focus in on what what truly matters about you, that you're going to relativize your economic circumstances. You're going to kind of find a better priority, find a better way of seeing life in yourself. He's saying you are more than your circumstances. He's echoing Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. He says this, but let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercise kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in this I delight, declares the, door, the Lord. Michael Eaton says about this. He says the high privilege of the poor is that the gospel is especially designed for them. And he's speaking about Matthew 11 speaks about the kingdom of God coming and he says the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Something about the gospel that's designed to bring specific hope to the poor, to the marginalized. Let me take a little time to, to maybe speak a little bit more directly and bring some application in, and bring this home in our lives. Maybe you're not convinced that this teaching applies to you in any way. Maybe you're not seeing the connection, so let me help. I think, I think we can all agree that we're living in an increasingly hedonistic society, you know, seeking pleasure, seeking comfort, seeking whatever it is that we feel like we need for our lives. The world is becoming more materialistic and, and de-spiritualized. So as our belief in eternity and a belief in a spiritual life kind of wanes, all we have left in culture to enjoy or to live for is the material world around us. And so if you have wealth, privilege, or power, that goes hand in hand with how much of this world you can actually enjoy, with how much of this world you can experience and where you can go and what you can do. And so our attitudes and our actions are impacted by wealth. And what it can do for us in our culture. And what it can help us experience. So so how we're impacted is when we look at someone who may be relative to us. I mean, it doesn't just say what's poor and what's rich. I think relative to us. We look at someone who's poor or marginalized. I don't know if it's true for you, but but I generally don't find anything there to be excited about. I I don't think there's anything there worth boasting about. It's just that. You know, maybe we feel a tinge of guilt, maybe pity for the poor. Interesting, James doesn't pity the poor at all. In this text, he, he doesn't pity the poor. He encourages them to celebrate what Christ has done in their lives. He encourages them to boast in this high position they have in the gospel. Now, you remember this letter is written to the church. So it's written to both the rich and the poor. So there's other implications for our lives. He's speaking both to that person in humble circumstances, but also to to others that aren't, but are engaging with people in humble circumstances. So he's warning us and he's saying, you know, what can happen is that we can overlook or disregard the poor, not really believing that they have anything of value to add to our lives or value to add to the life of the church, or value to add to a certain ministry, or this, or a business, or a perspective, or our own maturity. Maybe a bit of the prosperity gospel can creep into our lives when we think, hey, you know, these guys are poor, they must have, you know, done something, or something along the way, or maybe their relationship with God isn't quite right, but luckily, you know, mine's much better along than that. I mean, it's probably truer of Seeberg than here, but, but it happens. But then he speaks directly to the poor. Maybe you find yourself in humble circumstances, and he wants to make sure that you don't start to think that God only uses the rich or the privileged or the powerful, that those are the only people that God wants to use. Or don't believe for a moment that if you find yourself in humble circumstances, that you have any less grasp on the will of God than anyone else. He says, don't believe it. Don't think less of yourself. Don't think that you can't know God and know the fullness of God even in your circumstances. Now, I think this applies to us economically, but in the West, you know, you think of them scattered, they're persecuted, you know, I think as culture becomes less and more post-Christian... We find ourselves more and more at odds with culture. We can find ourselves maybe not materially impacted in our wealth, but we certainly are impacted in many other ways. We can find ourselves, you know, on the outs. You know, we can be considered bigots. We can be considered, you know, ridiculed or rejected or maligned or excluded or left out of of certain circumstances. So, in a sense, we can find ourselves as Christ followers in humble circumstances, in a culture that's increasingly not neutral, but hostile towards Christianity. you know, Just faithfulness to God can be re- regarded as bigotry. It's extreme. It's intolerance. So when we find ourselves in these humble circumstances, not only economically, but also in, our, in a sense our standing or our acceptance or our place, even in culture, there's comfort for us in these words. That even in the midst of those trials and those difficulties, that we ought to be bragging about our high position in God. So then he moves on. Now he wants to give an encouragement to the rich. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Now there's some debate here. Is he speaking to rich people outside the church or rich believers? And for me it's clear that he's addressing Christ followers in this text. Not everyone agrees with that. You know, it's, it's kind of the other side of the contrast you know, between the poor and the rich within the body of Christ. And, he, and he's doing the same thing. He's saying the rich, privileged, or powerful, you can equally be deceived in your sense of value, in your sense of identity, in your sense of purpose, in your sense of how much you're needed in people's lives or in culture at large. And again, James calls the rich to action. He says to the wealthy, the privileged, and the powers, take pride in, boast about, talk about, have unusual confidence in your low standing, and so relativize your economic life. Let your economic life find its right place in your perspective and how it impacts your sense of self. Notice here, by the way, he doesn't condemn the rich. He's not calling the rich to repentance. He's not saying there's anything wrong with money or wealth itself. I mean, many of people throughout the scriptures are wealthy people, but he's addressing the impact that wealth and material means and power and privilege can have on our lives. And so he's warning them. So again, what is this low position? Verse 10, it says, But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall, that beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. I mean, I think this low position is a few things. It's the reality that riches are temporary. They're temporary. That's why the big idea, we you know, we, we find our identity rooted in Christ, not in temporary realities. You know, riches are part of what will pass away when Christ comes again and there's a new heaven and a new earth. This idea of rich and poor will pass away. I think this low position is that that the rich must accept that their position will one day be undone as all things are made new. James reminds them that riches are fleeting and unpredictable in your life. I mean, it speaks about the sun coming out and, and kind of the riches withering as people are going about their business. I think he wants to remind them, the rich. And he says, guys, you do know that there's no special standing before God. You know, there's no special place for you in the church because of your finances, because of your material position, your circumstances. He says, no special advantage, no reserve seats, no automatic positions for the rich in the life of the local church. And so this lowly position that he encourages to those that are, are better off than others, is, he's asking them to truly understand that although for the rich it's very easy to find a sense of worth and identity and meaning and significance and dignity and command respect from people because of your wealth, he's saying it's an unworthy master for your life. It won't last, he says. Even if it lasts in this time, it won't last beyond. And it simply never satisfies. It's an unworthy foundation for you to build any sense of self on. And so that's the low position that he's calling. It's not who you are. Your, Your riches, they don't define you. You are not your material possessions. Psalm 49, I mean, it goes straight for the heart. It says, do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. I think sometimes the wealthy are maybe prone to a sense of, of control, being in control of life. You know, There's a sense of security. There's a sense of being able to mitigate against risk or trouble. Um, there's the self-sufficiency. I think the temptation is to see ourselves as, as our own saviors, that we're able to save ourselves, we're able to make our way in the life, we're able to make things work as we juggle you know, things around. And what about us? Who, I say us, I mean it's all relative, but how, you know, think about how we engage with people that are a lot better off than ourselves. We tend to value the rich. You know, We tend to listen to the rich, extend trust to the rich. You know, they have credibility in our eyes. Why? Why? It's a good question sometimes to just sit back on and reflect. And and why do I think like that? Why do I act like that? Why do I carry this attitude in my heart? Now, success in one area of life, financially, does not equate to success, wisdom, or wealth in every other part of life. It's an illusion, James reminds them. It's God who sustains and orders our days. Okay, it's sobering stuff. Before I come on to kind of this third and final encouragement, let me just say a couple of more things about kind of the rich and the poor and, and our interactions and in the life of the body of Christ. Some closing comments. You can see what James is doing here. He's trying to uplift the poor and he's trying to humble the rich not crushing the rich. Sometimes I think we can be a bit overly harsh in the church on, on people that are rich. He's not doing that. He, he's, hum, he's elevating the poor. He's humbling the rich. And here's the kicker. So that they don't find their ultimate sense of self in their material positions. That's what he's getting at here. Saying, elevate yourself if you're poor. Humble yourself if you're rich. Make sure that this is not your sense of self. reminds the rich that you're mortal, you're going to pass away. Michael Eaton, he summarizes this passage like this. He says, if you're rich, don't be arrogant. If you're poor, don't be intimidated. Realize that money is really not an important matter at all. It's simply part of this world's situation. It's not eternal. Everything will change at death, and your situation might even change in this life. The Bible has a lot more to say about Riches and poverty, by the way, I'm I'm just being faithful to this text and, and what James is encouraging in the life of the church because this is a reality in our lives. Okay, finally, an encouragement for everyone. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Masterful stroke here. I mean, James is a pastor. You know, the Christ followers, they spread out, they're experiencing difficulty. He's writing to them because he loves them and he wants them to be more like Christ and he wants to make sure that they're getting on relationally. And so he brilliantly, you know, he reminds them, it's not, hey guys, you know, the poor is this side, these, these are the standards for you, hey, the rich are this side, these are the standards for you. Here at the end, he just, he kind of pulls everyone together and reminds us that, that everyone, we're all in the body of Christ, we're all one in Christ. On equal footing. And, then, and so he, he masterfully kind of unites everyone again. Just when you maybe start to feel the scratchiness, you know, the rich and the poor. And, uh, he says, no, no, everyone, together, we're together in this. And then he pulls, he pulls us back into the larger flow of James chapter 1. Kind of takes us back to the language of verse 4 where he speaks about perseverance, persevering towards maturity. He says, A blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. I love that language of it says, um, because he has stood the test. It's this language, standing the test. The Greek, the Greek word kind of describes the, the testing of a coin, of an ancient coin that's precious metal to make sure that it's genuine. It speaks of the intensity and the heat and the difficulty of, of being tested to making sure if this is a genuine article, But then he also speaks about, you know, through that testing, we get this approval that, yeah, this is the real deal. This coin is real. This faith is real. This faith is genuine. These people are learning to trust me. These people are learning to depend on me. This is maturity in Christ. And he says, God rewards those who persevere. God rewards those who stay the course. God rewards those who don't give up in trials and temptations and in circumstances. As we persevere in our faith. Now, I once heard that faith isn't faith until it's the only thing you've got left to hold on to. It has to be tested. It has to go through difficulties. And he says there's a reward. And the reward is the crown of life. What is the crown of life? Well, it's not a king's crown. I do think. I think he's borrowing from the world of sports here, where the winner of a race would receive a wreath, a crowning wreath, to show that they have completed, they've won the race. So he's enticing them to continue running the race, continue to persevere, continue to push through these temptations and this deception to find your identity in your circumstances around you. He says there's a glorious reward, this crown of life. And I think it's it's two things, this crown of life. I think one, is pointing them to eternity. He's saying, guys, continue to push through, continue to trust in me, continue to let your faith grow strong in the midst of these temptations and trials. But I also think there's a reward right now for us. I mean, James, is, he, doesn't, he doesn't always write about past salvation or future salvation. He talks about not now salvation. What is, how does your faith look? What does it look like right now? How are you living right now? And I think he speaks about this, this crown of life. It's, it's a quality of life that we can experience as Christ followers who are persevering in faith, persevering in trust. I think it can include a kind of fresh assurance of faith. We find ourselves assured of our sonship, of our daughtership, that we're loved and that we're treasured. I think there's a a fresh enabling or maybe even a fresh grace of contentment that can come upon our lives and wherever we find ourselves, that we realize that these things around us, they can become very important, but they're far less important than the truth of the impact of the gospel on our lives. You can't help but think of the Apostle Paul when he writes in Philippians. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or wants. I can do everything through him who gives me strength." May this be true of us. So let me just quickly sum it up. Christ followers, keep your identity rooted in Christ, not in the circumstances that are surrounding your life right now, these temporary realities. And it applies in many different ways, but but here James is pushing in on this on finances, on wealth, on, on riches, and poverty and humble circumstances. And he's not only to speaking to those who find themselves in those positions, but also how we see each other in the midst of those circumstances. Can I pray for us? Let me invite you guys to, to come up. Father God, we why don't you stand? I know you've been sitting for a while. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that we, as we make our way through it, we're challenged. And uh, your word rubs up against our hearts and our minds and our assumptions and, and you, you call us to transformation and change. Would you do that in us, God? In Jesus' name. And can I encourage us as as Tyron leads us in the song. You know, this is the right time for you to just to sing the song as they're singing it. But this is also a good time for you to forget the song. Just respond to God and whatever he's spoken to you about in these moments and just do some business with them. So either one of those will do. Thanks, man.